science story, huh? It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about frustrations in the field. Our first story is from David Evans. It was recorded in September 2017 at the Transact Club in Toronto as part of Science Literacy Week. It was day three of our South African expedition, and our spirits were remarkably low. But we thought we would give Rui Dry another chance. Now, three days doesn't sound like very long, but it seemed like I'd been over every damn inch of this tiny rocky outcrop at least 10 times. My supervisor, Robert Rice, a self-proclaimed renaissance paleontologist, and the rest of the crew surely felt the same way. Now it's true, our South African colleagues thought we were crazy for mounting an expedition to this tiny road cut in the foothills of the Drakensberg Mountains. They said, we take geology field schools up there all the time and we've never found anything, but you're more than welcome to try. And nothing's gonna stop you North Americans from coming down here and showing us what it's, how to do things anyways. Um, so go for it. And we thought we'd take them up on the challenge. We were at the very spot where in 1978, famous fossil hunter James Kitching made a remarkable discovery in the scree on the other side of the road. He found a 200 million year old clutch of dinosaur eggs, each about the size of a goose egg and each containing the perfectly preserved curled up skeleton of an embryonic dinosaur. The oldest such find for 50 million years. But no one had found anything at that site or really anywhere else in the world since. We're in an extremely beautiful place. We're in Golden Gate Highlands National Park in South Africa. There was a valley across the road with a gorgeous river running through, running through it. And there, there were citadel-like rock formations all around me that glistened gold and red in the afternoon sun. These were the rocks of the Clarence and Elliott formations, sediment that was laid down 200 million years ago during the time of dinosaurs, and they were extremely rich in fossils. But our site wasn't so spectacular. It was a road cut. This isn't the, the noble trudge endless trudge through the desert that you see in dinosaur documentaries on TV. We literally drove right to it. As we were working, cars would whiz by, some would honk their horns, the park staff would get out trying to avoid work, asking us what we were doing. But it was Africa, it was pretty cool. There's a group of baboons that would often sit on the slope across the river and, and watch us do our work. But Rui Dry, which means red corner in the local dialect because of the brilliant red color that the rocks glean in the afternoon sun, um, it is a remarkably small site. It's only about 75 meters long by about 25 meters high. And it consists of a kind of a, a short, um, low cliff and a scree slope that runs down towards the road. Um, I wished it actually would be bigger, but the small size had, a, had its advantages. Um, we could easily cover the entire outcrop, searching them for fossils before lunch on the first day. So we thought this was gonna be a piece of cake. We thought we were gonna get there, 
we would scope out the, the whole thing quickly and make, it, make a big discovery. Um, we're pretty excited to get there. So on day one, we fanned out over this, this little rocky outcrop. We got down on our hands and knees like paleontologists do. We had our noses about a foot from the rocks and we started searching for fossils, uh, notably dinosaur eggs and nests. And we did it for three, four, five hours. Lunch came, we hadn't found anything. We did it for another five hours. We covered the same spots that we covered in the morning. We covered them again and we covered them again. And by the end of the day, all we had to show for it were worm burrows and mud cracks. We had, there was, there was no sign of a dinosaur. So day two, uh, we got back on our horse, we got back out to the outcrop and we did it again. We got right down on our bellies. We started scrambling over the rocks with literally the rocks within inches of, of our eyeballs. And again, another eight hours, another day, no dinosaur eggs. You have to understand to us, this wasn't like you know that classic search for a needle in a haystack. This was, this was more like searching for your Easter basket in your house on Easter morning. So if you don't find it in that first bout of enthusiasm, um, you systematically go through the house, you turn over all the couch cushions, you look in the, in, the, uh, in the dryer, and you find that basket and you're eating chocolate eggs by noon. This is like we've been looking for that Easter basket for two days and still hadn't found it. <laughs> Um, so it was pretty frustrating, and we were starting to think that our South African colleagues might be right, that maybe this was just a one-off find, or maybe if there was anything else there, that it was blown off the side of that hill with the road construction 30 years ago. So by day three, we were really starting to feel the pressure. The National Geographic Society had funded our, our expedition, and, and I personally feel like I lobbied my supervisor, Robert, um, at least a little bit to come and do this field work. Now, he's not a dinosaur person and doesn't typically work on dinosaurs. And so I told them when we usually find dinosaur eggs, we usually find a whole bunch of them. You don't find just one. They're like the Frito-Lays of dinosaur fossils. Um, and so, you know, an another interesting thing about the group that we know laid these dinosaur eggs is that their descendants, 100 million years later, nested in giant colonies. And we would find their nesting sites preserved in the fossil record, eggs and nests, over thousands of square meters. And so we wondered if early dinosaurs did that too. And we thought the odds were pretty darn good before we came, but after a couple days on the outcrop, you know, we, we weren't feeling nearly as confident. So day three came along and we persevered. We spent another eight hours going over and over the rocks that we had been over and over the previous couple of days. We uh, crawled over the scree slopes. We looked in the scree slope on the one side of the road. We looked at the scree slope on the near side of the road. We split a bunch of rocks randomly with our hammers. And at the end of day three, with the, with the sun waning in the afternoon, we still had nothing. And so we were feeling pretty defeated and we were feeling pretty, pretty exhausted and pretty dejected. Um, Robert was clearly bored. And uh, me and uh, fellow graduate student, Hillary Madden, um, we just plunked ourselves at the top of the scree slope with the cliff to our backs, kind of like a rocky sofa. And uh, Hill and I were like perennial goofballs and best friends. And uh, in that moment, we started doing what kids do when they're bored. 
we started throwing rocks. <laughs> and we started, we started picking up palm-sized rocks and throwing them across the road. And then we started skipping the rocks across the road. We'd bounce it off the tarmac and try to get into the river valley on, there's other, on the other side. One rock after another after another, we laughed. We thought this was like completely hilarious. I don't think Robert was very impressed, but he didn't really care. And uh, kind of in that moment, I kind of reverted back to my childhood. As you guys can probably guess, I, uh, I was a dinosaur kid. <laughs> I read every book on dinosaurs at every public library within 50 miles of my house. I told everyone who would listen that I was gonna grow up to be a paleontologist. And I did, which is pretty awesome. Um, and uh, of course, I dreamed of going to far off places and searching for dinosaurs. And so that day and that expedition, my first big international expedition to Africa, no less, I was living my dream. And part of that dream though, of course, is finding fossils. Uh, but when you find a fossil, it's an incredibly special experience. Um, it's a remnant of past life that no one before you has ever seen, and it's an amazing window into the history of life on Earth and window in, into the past. And even just being on rocks that have fossils in them, uh, like the ones of the Elliott and Clarence Formation where we were, um, is a pretty special experience for me. Just knowing that at every turn, at every chip of the hammer, um, you could find that something brand new something exciting and just being on the rocks and having that anticipation is to me one of the best feelings on earth. It's what I live for. So back to that hillside, we threw rocks for what seemed like ever. We just kept throwing rocks uh, across the road. Um, and I ran out of good chucking rocks. And so I reached back into the cliff rather than picking a rock from the scree slope. And I just pulled a rock from the cliff. And before I hucked it, I looked at it. <laughs> and it's a good thing. <laughs> I was holding in my hand a perfectly preserved dinosaur egg. Just like the ones that Kitching had found 30 years earlier. And my jaw dropped. And without saying a word, I just turned to Hillary. <laughs> and she looked at, at me, and she looked at what was in my hand, and her jaw just <laughs> dropped. And I just retraced the arc of my arm <laughs> from where I had picked up that rock in the cliff face, and we turned, and beside it was the outline of another egg, and another egg and another egg. Six eggs in a perfect line. We had found a dinosaur nest. So we spent the last part of the expedition chiseling and sawing that nest out of the hillside. And it turned out to be amazing. 36 eggs, all arranged in a, in a tight clutch. It was a beautiful fossil. But more importantly, it reprogrammed our search image. We were looking for whole eggs or eggshell fragments um, as they would weather out of soft sediment. But what we should have been looking for is the faint outlines of eggshells, eggshells that are thinner than your fingernail. Cross sections of eggs in the hard red rock. And once we realized that, our luck changed and we were off to the races. 
we found another 13 nests in that tiny little road cut. And our expedition was a huge success. And to say, you know, to say the least, our South, Ameri our South African colleagues, sorry, were just like beside themselves. They were in disbelief, but they were over the moon. So we had really hit the scientific jackpot. We discovered the world's oldest dinosaur nesting site. And our discovery showed that even the earliest dinosaurs nested in large col colonies or communal nesting. And um, they, they also returned to the same spot year after year to lay their eggs. So these are behaviors that we associate with birds today, but they actually had their evolutionary roots 200 million years ago, and they demonstrate a deep evolutionary connection between dinosaurs and birds. But I learned something uh, in that expedition that stuck with me my whole career. Of course, perseverance and luck, they play a big role in advancing knowledge. But in this case, those eggs were there, right in front of my face the entire time, and right in front of so many faces for years. But we just didn't know what we were looking for. So sometimes the biggest, I think the biggest breakthroughs in science are like that. You just have to look at things a little differently. Thanks. That was David Evans. David is an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Toronto, as well as holding the Timmerty Chair in Vertebrate Paleontology and overseeing dinosaur research at the Royal Ontario Museum. As a curator, David helped develop the museum's dinosaur galleries and was lead curator of the major traveling exhibition, Ultimate Dinosaurs. He has been featured on numerous television shows, and most recently, he was co-creator of the history series Dino Hunt Canada. Active in the field, he has participated in expeditions all over the world and has helped discover 10 new dinosaur species in the last five years, including the remarkable horned dinosaur Windyceratops from southern Alberta and the wickedly armored Zool, named after the Ghostbusters movie monster. Our second story today is from Gabriella Serrato Marx. It was recorded in October 2017 at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme that night was Roadblocks. I spent my first day as a graduate student in a cave underground in southern Mexico looking for rocks. And I was with a big group of geologists, so I was having a great time. And the cave is just like you're picturing, probably. It was muddy, and there were bats. It was cold. There was water dripping, making that like creepy drip sound. Um, and there was sort of a river that we were walking through as well. Um, and I was actually loving it. I was like, I'm cold, but I like it. The bats are cute. I like it, um, and I was having a great time. I was like, this is gonna be my career. This is perfect. And we were looking for stalagmites because they are the ones that grow bottom to top, and they sort of uh, act as log books for past rainfall conditions. So the ones that are older are like older log books, so we like those. And we're looking for the best stalagmites, and we sort of come around a corner to a new passageway. And in that area, the river gets a lot deeper. So there are actually scuba divers and they're going cave diving. 
And I saw that and was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to cave dive. And I was very like excited. I went up to them. I was like, hi, I'm a geologist. I'm looking for stalagmites. And they were sort of like, okay, like, we're going to go dive. Um, but I was really, really excited. And they, they were looking at these stalagmites that were deep down that I could never get to because I can't scuba dive. So they're way deeper than we could even look at. And so I was like, okay, next year, that's going to be me. And uh, as long as I've been doing those like, awkward icebreakers where they ask you for your superpower, I've always said that I would want to breathe underwater. So the closest thing is scuba diving. And I've always loved rocks. So cave diving was like perfect. And it's been about two years now since I first went to a cave and since I started grad school. And um, I can't hike right now and I can't carry a big scuba gear pack and I definitely can't cave dive because I'm in the process of getting diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, which might sound familiar from those commercials. They play a lot during football games. I don't know why, but they say like, Lyrica helped me with all my fibromyalgia pain. And they're like these 60-year-old women and they're in fields and they just want to like hang out with their grandkids. But it's me and I just want to like hang out with my cat and I'm on my couch and everything hurts. So um, it's a chronic pain condition, which means that everything in my body hurts most of the time. Um, and when I go to the doctors, they ask me to rate my pain on a scale from one to 10. And as a scientist, I totally understand the need to put experiences into numbers and to have data that they can put down into my chart and sort of understand me through those numbers. But as someone who is living it, I have a really hard time quantifying the amount of pain that I'm in. And so I don't know what number it is to get out of bed and not be able to pick up my feet and to just shuffle along until I can sort of warm up my body enough to work or to take two semesters of sign language classes and love it, but have my hands hurt too much to sign, or to have all of my plans with my friends have an asterisk of, we'll see how I feel that night. So I haven't figured out what number to tell them. When I'm really grumpy, I do tell them, how high would it have to be for you to help me or for you to want to do something for me here? Um, I haven't figured out the answer to how high it would have to be yet, but I have found out about this thing in CrossFit called the pain cave. And obviously I'm not doing CrossFit right now, but my friends told me about it. And it's this concept where when you are exercising, you're doing these CrossFit things, I don't know what they do, but the CrossFit things, <laughs> and you're in so much pain that you like are meditating and you're in this like deeper version of yourself because you're in so much pain. And I'm not familiar with that, but for me, like a pain cave is literally a cave and I'm in pain and I have to go in it. So it's not the best thing yet, but this summer I decided I would like try it. I was gonna try to go caving with all this pain I've been having. And I was in Spain for a short course, so it's like a week-long summer camp for nerds. And it was this cave where they've literally found cavemen. They've found like the first cave people in this cave. So it was a super exciting opportunity to go and get to cave with the cavemen um, or the skeletons of them. <laughs> and um, turns out actually that the skeletons 
weren't there. They like took them away, but they didn't tell us that part. So it's like, this is where the skeleton was. Um, but yeah, so I went into this cave and I asked the woman who was guiding us, um, how, how easy is this cave? How hard is it to walk into it? And the problem here is that there's no one to 10 scale. There's no metric for how hard a cave is. So she told me, yeah, it's not bad. It's pretty easy. It's an easy walk in and easy walk down once you're in. And I was like, yeah, okay. Turns out I should have asked for what scale she was using for some numbers. Um, it was not an easy cave. So after four hours of slipping on bat poop and walking over gravel, picture like a gravel driveway, but on a slant. So I was walking down that for four hours, um, holding onto a rope for dear life. So every single part of my body hurt. My hands felt like they were like 10 times the size. My ankles felt like they just couldn't support me any longer. And I said, okay, it's hour four, I'm doing great. I've made it through so far and the only choice I have is to keep going. I don't actually have the choice to stop because I'm in a cave, so I have to get myself back out. And I leaned my arm just for a second on the side of this rock and you're not usually supposed to touch stuff in the cave for the stalagmites and the stalactites and they won't grow if you touch it and the whole thing, but I was like, you know, this place, there's been rivers, there's been rocks, so it should be fine. I leaned a little bit. And turns out that the guide was right behind me, and she said, excuse me, please move your hand. This exact spot is where the cavemen walked, and you're ruining it. <laughs> so that was bad. But on top of that, right now, because of my pain or in addition, still figuring that out too, um, my jaw locks open and closed and um, I can't hold a scuba mouthpiece, so I can't get scuba certified. So right now, I am a cave geologist who can't cave and I am a scuba diving enthusiast to be that can't scuba dive. And I definitely can't go into priceless archeological sites right now either. So I'm figuring out what I can do instead because um, I do still have to finish my program and figure out what I'm gonna do after that too. And I've gotten really good at microstratigraphy, which is basically science talk for um, drawing lines on a computer and it's pretty easy to do. I just have to move my hand, so that's at least a good thing to do. And um, I've gotten really good at reading, too. I can read really carefully for a long time and just sit and look at it for hours on end. Um, but to be serious, um, if you had me do one of those icebreakers again where you ask me what my superpower would be, I would still say that it would be to breathe underwater and it would not be to feel no pain because even though I would not choose this pain and I didn't choose the pain, um, I'm gonna make it work. Thank you. That was Gabriella Serrato Marks. Gabriella is a PhD student in the MIT Hui Joint Program in Oceanography where she works with stalagmites from Mexico. Her current research focuses on archives of past rainfall and climate change. Outside of research, she is interested in issues of diversity and inclusion in STEM, hanging out with her cat, and growing tiny squash in her parents' garden. If you enjoyed today's stories or are a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. 
It helps us climb the rankings and that helps new listeners find the podcast. And we really want to share these stories with as many people as possible. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Nissa Greenberg, Jesse Hildebrand, Elian Fairbairn, Christine Gentry, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Transac and the Oberon for hosting these shows, and to Dinosaurs and Caves for being really friggin' cool. Thanks for listening. Thank you.